0: Good evening, everyone. Rabbi Arthur Green is among the world's leading scholars of the Jewish mystical tradition, and in particular of the Hasidic movement, which transformed Jewish spirituality in the 18th century and whose impact we still feel today. Through his academic studies and through his translations and commentaries of Hasidic texts, Rabbi Green explains that tradition to his fellow scholars and to all of us. Rabbi Green is also one of our most important contemporary Jewish theologians. In his theological writing, including his book, Seek My Face, Rabbi Green adapts the insights of the Hasidic masters to our own world. He shows us how we can mine the wisdom of pre-modern Jewish mysticism to help us in our struggles today, in our postmodern world, to find meaning and ultimate purpose in our lives. And finally Rabbi Green has been one of our most important leaders in the transformation of American Judaism as it's actually lived in our communities. In 1954 Rabbi Green's teacher Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote a book called Man's Quest for God in which Heschel bitterly and and accurately criticized the American synagogue of that time as a place of conformity and propriety and respectability and decorum, but a place that was spiritually dead, a place in which God was nowhere to be found. In the next decade, right after his ordination in 1967, it was Rabbi Heschel's student, Rabbi Green, who started to change that. In 1968, Rabbi Green founded Chavarat Shalom in Boston a small community of young Jews committed to bringing warmth and intensity and passion and depth and meaning back into Jewish worship and learning. It was Chavarat Shalom through its many alumni that gave birth to the larger Chavarat movement of the 1970s and 80s and to the independent Minyan movement of the 2000s, which have had such a deep impact on American Jewish prayer. Today, in the movement to transform the American synagogue as an institution, the institution that Rabbi Heschel was so critical of two generations ago, in the move to make the synagogue a place of true spiritual searching and growth and meaning, which has become such an important communal priority in the last few decades, you can find the original DNA of Chavarat Shalom and with it the influence of Rabbi Green. Rabbi Green was formerly Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and Brandeis and President of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. He's currently the head of the Rabbinical School at Boston's Hebrew College, which he founded in 2004 to train the kind of rabbis that today's Jews are desperately in need of. Through the young rabbis that he shapes and influences, Rabbi Green continues to be a transformative figure in American Jewish life. It's as a scholar, and an interpreter, and as a theologian, and as a catalyst for change that Rabbi Green has helped to shape the contemporary Jewish world. And it's our honor to welcome him and to learn from him this evening.
1: Thank you, thank you. Very nice to be here and very nice to be, I must say, in a, uh, in a synagogue of somebody who, who, the, who himself who themselves follow very much those ideals and very much that example. So it's great to be back here, I would say, at the new shul and, uh, and back here in the, in the Phoenix community. Someday they're going to write the history of Jews and Judaism in the early decades of the 21st century. I had a scholar, I had a colleague at Brandeis, a great scholar of American Jewish history named Jonathan Sarna, and he has his minions out around the Jewish community looking and taking notes and seeing what's going on. When they write the history of these decades, one of the things they're going to say is that this is the era when the Jewish community scrambled to rediscover the mystical tradition. The mystical tradition which that community had intentionally, very consciously, 200 years ago decided to exclude from Judaism. In the early 19th century, in the first decades when Jews were accepted into polite company in the Western world, a new concept was created that had never existed before. It's something you can't say in Hebrew because it's not at all a traditional Jewish idea. This concept is called mainstream Judaism. <laughs> mainstream You've all heard of it, mainstream Judaism. It started in German and then was translated into English. If you ask what is mainstream Judaism there for? It's there to exclude certain things. What's not in the mainstream? What's not in the mainstream is something we don't have to deal with that. It's not really Judaism. We don't have to teach it. It's not part of the mainstream. We don't have to worry about passing it on, and more important, we don't have to worry if it embarrasses us because it's not mainstream Judaism. You see, the first people to accept us into polite company in the Western world were mostly liberal Protestants and deists. And we had felt that we had to do them the favor of showing them we have a religion just like theirs. We too are ethical monotheists. We too are universalists. We too are rational people. So anything that contradicted those views of Judaism, sweep it under the rug. It's not the mainstream. When I was a rabbinical student in the 1960s, my revered teacher, Abraham Joshua Heschel, was not allowed to teach Hasidism, his own field of study, as one of his main courses in the rabbinical school because Hasidism is not mainstream Judaism. He had to teach Maimonides one year and Halevi the next year. On his own time, if he wanted a small seminar, he could teach Hasidism, but it wasn't the mainstream. Now that's changed, that's changed at that rabbinical school, it's changed in every rabbinical school. You look around now, when I was a student, you wanted to read books on Jewish mysticism, you read Gershom Scholem and Martin Buber, that's all there was. Then you had to go to some occult bookstore and read the the Holy Secrets of the Kwabala. But uh, now you walk, we have a great Jewish bookstore in Boston, I'm proud to say, the Israel Bookshop. You walk in, there's a whole wall of books on Jewish mysticism. Not all of them good books, by the way, some bad books too, but a lot. More books have been written on Jewish meditation in the past 20 years than in the preceding 2000. I can tell you that. There's a tremendous desire to recover. Why? I could spend the whole evening talking about that. It's part of a much broader picture. I believe that um, for the past two centuries, or for a period of two centuries, let me say, the real religion of the Western world, that which we thought was the real criterion of truth, was the religion of science and scientific progress. From 1750 to 1950, to know something was to know it scientifically. We are turning away the darkness. We are discovering more and more things. Science is always progressing. I am not pleased, I'm not a Luddite, I'm not against science, but here I'm not talking about science, but about scientism. The idea that science has all the answers. It's really science that will solve our problems and enlighten us and save us from ourselves. And the more we know, and that means the more we know scientifically, the more we will progress and become better people. That faith in science suffered a major crisis in the middle of the 20th century. A two-pronged crisis called Auschwitz and Hiroshima. And I don't mean to morally equivalent them, please, by putting them together in the same sentence. Auschwitz, because the most enlightened country in Europe produced the most unimaginable medieval terror. How could it have happened in the country with all those Nobel Prizes in, in sciences? And all that advanced learning and great music and great literature. And Hiroshima meant we now all live in the nuclear age. We now all live. We are the first people since the Black Death in the 13th, 14th century to believe that it's possible that everything will be destroyed. When I was a teenager, we had a name for the guy. Dr. Strangelove would come and push the button. Yes, somebody would push the button and the world would blow up. Um, It's very hard to live in an age like that. What do you need in an age like that? You need some kind of deeper spiritual mooring. And so the liberal, rationalistic religion of the Western world, kind of religious pragmatism, makes us be good people. It's good to believe in God because it makes you a better person. Well, we don't know if we really believe it, but it's a good idea to have. All that kind of modern religion was inadequate. People began to look for something deeper. Maybe there is some wisdom that was forgotten in the course of the pursuit of modernity that will save us, help us. Save us from ourselves, save ourselves from what we might become. Maybe it's found on a Tibetan mountaintop. Maybe it's found in the yoga teachers. Maybe it's found in a Zen monastery. Maybe it's even found among the Kabbalists. Maybe there is some secret truth, some ancient truth that we can somehow recover that's going to change our lives and keep us from destroying our world. We have all watched in the course of the last 20, 30 years back and forth from nuclear holocaust to environmental disaster. Will we blow up the world or will we just so over consume resources in an irresponsible way that we won't be able to survive anymore? What's going to save us from ourselves? So there is, this, there is this combing of the traditions by all kinds of very interesting people with open minds who are looking for sources of wisdom. Now that's a kind of postmodern religious move. It's not pre-modern religion, because in pre-modern religion, if I walk away from the mic, can you still hear me OK? Yes. Good. In pre-modern religion, remember there was a zero sum game. If mine is true, yours is false. I have all the truth, and your religion is a lie. That's pre-modern religion. Postmodern religion, there is a great font of human wisdom that has some kind of divine edge to it not because God gave it to us word for word, but because there is no, it's hard to d- define the borders between what's human wisdom and what's divine truth. And some of that divine truth may be found everywhere. So let's learn from each other. Let's go back and see what those sources of wisdom are. The rediscovery of Kabbalah is a Jewish version of that. It's a part of that quest. The question is how do we recover? What should we take from it? What should we leave behind? There are things I know I don't want to take from that old wisdom. The role of women, no thanks. The style of leadership, dynastic leadership, chassidic rebbees, succeeding one generation after another. Charisma doesn't pass in the genes, you know. It doesn't work that way. There are lots of things that could be left behind from those traditions and some very great and beautiful things that can be rediscovered but have to be reshaped, retooled retold for people who live in the 21st century. I belong to the generation, some of you I can see by age still do also, where I remember East European grandparents. Yes, I'm a third generation American Jew. I still know what Yiddish accents are supposed to sound like. Um, My grandfather, who lived to be 99 from 1878 to 1977, was born in the late Middle Ages, came from a shtetl in Eastern Europe, right? There was nothing other than a horse and cart for travel and lived to see a man on the moon. He came from a world in which there were two kinds of people, Yidin and Goyim. Yidin speak Yiddish and Goyim speak Goyish, yes? And Goyim hate Yidden and Yidin hate Goyim back. And that's what there was. That's what there was, nothing else. Thank God we do not live in that world. Thank God we do not live in that narrow world where everybody hates us and we have to hate everybody or fear everybody. We live in a world of lots of variety and diversity and and the world is so much smaller because of travel and we've seen civilizations that our ancestors had no idea ever existed and people who never heard of Jews or Judaism and who certainly don't hate us because they they never knew what we were and everything else. Our world is on the one hand so much bigger and on the other hand so much smaller than anything our ancestors could have imagined. Therefore, a Judaism directly imported from the 18th century or the 16th century and thrown into the 21st century context doesn't work and shouldn't work. If I give my grandchildren exactly what my grandfather brought from Eastern Europe, I'll be doing the wrong thing. right? Because that's a religion for people living in a small town ghetto wall shtetl where thank God my grandchildren are not going to live and I don't want them to live there. On the other hand, so much wisdom, so much depth, so much insight, so that's the job. That's what the job is, finding out how to preserve the tradition, what to take from it, what to learn from it, and not throw away the baby with the bathwater and not so water it down that there's nothing really left, but to make sure you're taking the best elements and not the worst. And some people have done it all wrong. There are people who have tried to take the Jewish mystical tradition, make it into a commercial venture. I think that's a terrible, terrible uh, error. Um, There are people who try to say, it will give you good fortune if you do this, and we'll protect you if you do that, and and just follow the rules and everything will come out okay. And uh, that's not the way to do it for today. So I want to spend the next uh, half hour or so, the next few minutes, telling you something about what I've gotten out of 50 years of studying this tradition and why I think it's important. That's really what I do. I've been a reader of this material. I was a little ahead of my time. It's been rediscovered in the last 10 or 20 years, but I've been studying it for the last 40 or 50, so I'm have a, I'm a little bit ahead of the game. That's all I am. The version that makes most sense to me is the version that Hasidism created the Jewish mystical tradition, because it was meant to extend to a wide swath of population. The tradition had always been a very esoteric tradition, very hard to understand, very complicated symbols, sometimes overly complicated, intentionally to keep outsiders to keep outsiders away. Hasidism opened this world up. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, had a very simple insight. He said there is no place and there is no moment, there is no event, there is no person that's not filled to the brim with the presence of God if you know how to open your eyes to it. The trick is to open your inner eye and to see that there's no separation between God and world. For the mystic, the relationship between God and world is not a God out there who creates a world that's separate but rather a divine quality that resides within. The relationship between God and world is that of deep structure and surface appearance. Penetrate beyond the surface appearance and you'll see that deeper truth. That deeper truth will become apparent to you. The deeper truth is always a truth of oneness because the most basic teaching of mystics all over the world, whether they're Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or Christian, is there is only one. Where you thought there were many, there turns out to be one. You thought there was separation, there turns out to be unity. The Christian mystic will, of course, meditate on the Trinity. The Jewish mystic will recite Shema Yisrael in a certain way. The Hindu mystic will talk about the 10,000 forms and then the oneness of Brahman that, that underlies them. Each of these has its own cultural context, and there are differences between them because of the cultural context and language. I don't mean to minimize those. But there is an essential truth. A direct, unmediated experience of that oneness is possible. Lift the veil, open the inner eye and you will see it. And its ultimate truth is the oneness of all being. That's essentially where mystics are going. So uh, the famous uh, famous, uh, work of the Chabad Hasidim, Chabad is one of the great mystical teachings of Judaism for uh, many generations, unfortunately, much neglected by the current rush to to open more and more centers and more and more and more and more outlets. But the Chabad, the great Chabad work of Chabad, the Tanya, reads the verse that many of us know because we recite it in the Aleinu. Know this day, settled upon your heart that uh, that God is the head, that Hashem is God in heaven above and earth beneath, Ein od. In Old in Hebrews, in our prayer books, you'll see there is none other, but they translate it the way it should be translated. There ain't nothing else. Uh, there was only one. There was only one. And our our inability to see that is caused by our own blindness, by our own, usually by the walls that we put up against it. The journey to God is a journey inward rather than a journey upward. I like to say that for our generation, the internal metaphor works better than the vertical metaphor. The vertical vertical metaphor, where is God? Up there. Where are we? Down here. That vertical metaphor is very ancient. Goes back long before the Bible. The Greek gods, the Mesopotamian gods all lived in the sky. We just took that over when the Bible came. But it's very reinforced, of course, by our tradition. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord. The earth has been given to the children of men. Where does Moses get the Torah? The Top of the mountain. Jacob's ladder. Yes. That vertical metaphor. Now, once we overcome childhood, we understand it's not that way. God is not in the sky. I remember Heschel jumping up and down and saying, Torah mina Hashamayim is not a geographical statement. <laughs> Jonah comes from heaven is not a geographical statement, doesn't mean from the other side of the sky. But it's very hard for us to overcome that. We talk about somebody being on a very high spiritual level, you understand? It's also a vertical metaphor. We get high, it's also a vertical metaphor, yes. But that metaphor has been competing in Judaism for 2,000 years with another metaphor, and that's the internal metaphor. Begins in the Torah itself when Moses says that the, in his speeches in Devarim, lo the Torah is not in heaven, so you will say who will go up to heaven and get it for us? It's b'ficha uvelvavcha l'asoto, it's in your mouth and your heart. So you have to go in to find it. Now, in is also a metaphor. If I go in here physically, I'm going to find lots of gooey stuff but I'm not going to find God or Torah. Um, up and in are both metaphors. But for our generation, I would say the internal metaphor works better, the journey inward. It's less authoritarian. Yes, it's less authoritarian, and that's important for our generation of seekers who don't, who don't want ready answers, who have more questions than answers. But it's different. If God is in heaven, you have to build a ladder and climb up the ladder. That's a long distance away. If God is in the heart, the journey to God is more like smashing through a wall than like climbing a ladder. It's not that you have to go far away. It's that you have to break through defenses. You have to break through some walls. Because you have built walls around yourself over the years that keep you from experiencing that truth, from, keep you from seeing that that one is inside you, that that one is there. And once you begin that work, then you understand that the relationship between the cosmic one of being and the individual is that layer of outer self and inner self. And the deepest inner self is no longer your own self, but is the self of something beyond you, is the self of the universe. We do much better if we speak Hebrew rather than English. We were not created to be an English-speaking Jewish tradition. So let's not take the word G-O-D, let's take the word yud heh the name for God in Hebrew. The word yud that which is mistransliterated Jehovah, but the actual pronunciation we are not permitted to say, only the high priest could say it in Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies. That, that, that name yud name vav is an impossible conflation of the verb to be. If I had a blackboard here I would write, Hayah Hove yihyeh was, is, will be and smush it together in a form that doesn't exist and get yod which should not be translated G-O-D but should be translated was, is, will be. Um, the closest you can come in English is being but being you have to have the past and future there along with the present. So it's the oneness of all being, it's that which underlies all that is and it's that which constantly brings being into existence. So it's only a fake noun, it's not really a noun, it's a verb. And when Moses is going into Egypt to redeem the people and says to God, and when he ask me what your name is, what should I say? And he gives him this name, yud Hey Moses is afraid the people might say, oh, I know what God is, I know yud And that's when God says, "Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh, I will be whatever I will be which is to say, if you think you got me in a noun, if you think you got me in a little defined box, I will go conjugate myself and become a verb again. <laughs> I am the ultimately elusive. I am the ultimately elusive. That's what Eheya asher Eheya means. I will remain elusive even after all your attempts to define me and pin me down and make me a noun. So that's, so that's what the Baal Tov discovered. That that, that that oneness of being, that, that elusive subtle presence, which is the divine self is there, is present everywhere if you open your eyes to it. God is not something out there other than, but God is the world we see if our eyes, if our eyes are truly open. Now how do you do that? How do you do that work? Well, I want to give you a Something I like to play with, from within the Hasidic tradition, I've been studying these texts for a long time. I want to give you two brief definitions of what that work is that come from the Hasidic sources themselves. I like to put these two definitions together because they're parallel. They're both three words long and they're both in Yiddish, which was the only spoken language Jews had in Eastern Europe. The literature was all written in Hebrew because Hebrew was the literary language in which you wrote down profound ideas, but when you spoke, You only spoke in Yiddish, that was the only spoken language. Uh, Two rabbis who are disciples of the first Chabad master, oh, in about 1810, exchanged letters with each other. Each was a rabbi of one of the communities in Belarus. And one of them says, why are we Hasidim being persecuted? You know that Hasidism was originally excommunicated and fiercely persecuted by the rabbinate for being a new and dangerous movement. He said, Why do they hate us so much? What do they have against us? And the other tries to explain, Well, they don't know the secret. He's writing in Hebrew. They don't know the secret that all of us Hasidim know. And then he can't say it in Hebrew, he switches to Yiddish. They don't know the great secret of being, which is Alts is Got. everything is God. And he says, When this secret came to the first Hasidim a generation ago, it came to them in a completely wild manner. They would go screaming through the streets, Nothing but God, nothing but God. And we had to control it. And only our master, of course, the Master of Chabad knows how to keep it contained and inward and proper and not and not dangerous. And that's who we are. We are the ones who know else is God, everything is God, but we can keep it in controlled, disciplined fashion. How do, you, how do you keep that intoxicating, transforming insight inside, inside you without letting it burst out? So that's one definition. I'll say those who know, to know that everything is God. But then they asked the Kotzke Rebbe, about 50 years later, the Kotzke Rebbe is a very uh, self-critical, almost reformer within Hasidism. He sees the Hasidic movement as becoming just another form of tradition People are chassidim, but their grandfathers were chassidim and they're doing the same thing the last generation did and it's getting boring and, uh, and, 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 and not spiritually powerful. So they asked the Kaps Karibbe, what does it mean to be a chassid? And they also answered in three words in Yiddish, he said, arbet to work on yourself. Work on yourself. There you have work to do. You have spiritual work to do. You have to work in opening your heart. You have to work at making yourself more aware you have to work at making yourself a better moral person. And doing that work is the, is the task of, of mystical teaching. It's to tell you how to do that work. So I like to put these two next to each other. God,. All is God, work on yourself. Work on yourself, all is God. You see, just to say all is God is a little bit too much like tune in, turn on, drop out. You remember that one? Tune in, turn on, drop out, Timothy Leary. All God, wow, all I have to say is wow, and smile a lot. And then I can be like Swami so-and-so who claps his hands a little and smiles, and everybody says yes, yes, yes. That's all there is to do. But of course, the, 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 the true Swamis knew much better than that too. They got to that after many years of, of sitting in yoga positions or, or fasting or whatever they did. Work on yourself, working on yourself, doing the work. And that means spiritual discipline. Uh, whatever form it takes, and Judaism is one of the great sets of tools for spiritual discipline. That's what the mitzvot are. They're a way of training the heart to be open. They're a way of training the heart to, make, to keep its doorway partly open so you can see. Uh, that's, what the, that's what the tools are for. My dear friend and mentor very much missed this year, Zalman Schachter used to say Judaism is a toolbox. It's a great toolbox. But a toolbox doesn't do you any good until you open it and get to work and use the tools. You just walk around and say, look at my nice toolbox. I have beautiful tools here. Look, they're precision tools and they're nice and polished and they're shiny. Toolbox doesn't do you any good. You have to take them out and and get to work. Um, so, So all is God. Work on yourself, work on yourself, always, God. Uh, years and years ago, my wife and I spent a semester in Berkeley, California. I was a guest lecturer at the Graduate Theological Union. And around the corner from us, like around every corner in Berkeley in those days, there was a spiritual bookstore. And this spiritual bookstore had a wonderful big sign. that In great big letters, it said, Scientology doesn't work. <laughs> and in smi- slightly smaller letters underneath it, I believe, it said, uh, integral yoga doesn't work. And then in slightly smaller, letters, was an inverted pyramid, in slightly smaller, letters, Christianity doesn't work. And it got smaller and smaller and smaller. It doesn't work, doesn't work. And on the bottom of the side in great big letters again, it said, you work. Right? The Chatzka Rebbe's message, working on yourself. So Judaism is a set of tools for working on yourself, and that means your moral life, the way you act toward fellow human beings and fellow creatures in the world, and it means your spiritual life—the degree to which your heart is open, open to others, open to their pain and suffering and joy and, and everything else that goes with it—but also open to the to the presence of God that seeks to that seeks to shine its way into your life, if you can if you can allow it to do so. The Kutzkareb was also famous for saying, "God is only where people let God in. Uh, that's the only place you'll find God." Um, so, being open to that work. Now, what's the value of this tradition today? What do we need it for? You can say we live very comfortable lives in our world. We live with a degree of comfort that our ancestors would never have dreamed of. We live with a degree of, we live with a degree of wealth and of, and of ability to do things and of knowledge, communication that no other generation would have dreamed of. But the other reason why there's a search for spiritual wisdom is that people realize after all this, there must be something more to it. There must be some greater reason for living. What are we doing here? How do we get here and where are we going? I believe I've written this in my book, Radical Judaism. I open with this. The most important sacred story of our time is a sacred story we have neglected. We Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus are all very busy, each of us with our own sacred stories. Moses received the Torah from God on the mountaintop. Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, Muhammad was Allah's chosen messenger. The Buddha achieved enlightenment under the tree, etc., etc. etc. But there is a bigger story, and it's one we all have in common. It's the story of evolution, my friends. How did we get here? And where are we going? For the past 150 years, people have understood that the way this world came about was not in seven days and not in, not by in creation, creation as we literally understand in our or anybody else's sacred text, But it's this 13 or 14 billion-year-long process of step-by-step evolution. We are all descended from one-celled creatures that lived in the bottom of the sea. And those creatures at some point managed to find their way into dry land after some course of millions of years. And of those creatures that found their way into dry land, some of them became plants, struck roots into the soil, and received the nourishment from the soil. And others walked around on that land and became animals and ate those plants and received the nourishment that way. That is the greatest sacred story of all time. If we learn to see it with the eyes of wonder open, we learn to see that there's nothing more miraculous than the tale of evolution itself. How we got here. Now that tale of evolution has been seen by some religious people across the 20th century as competing with religious truth. Your school boards in Kansas are still fighting a rear-guard action against evolution, yes? Um, but it's over. That battle is over. We understand the world is much older. We understand the world evolved. But that doesn't mean that's not a sacred truth. Learn to see that process of evolution with the eyes that B'al Shem Tov is talking about, with your eyes open, discovering the presence of God everywhere. And you understand that each one of those is a miracle. Not because somebody upstairs is pulling the strings, no. Because there is a presence in each of these acts that is, that is transformative and eye-opening. We Jews, uh, you talked about the story of the Exodus, we Jews value the, the story of a man named Nachshon bin Minadav. You remember him? The first guy to walk into the Red Sea and the sea didn't split until it was up to his neck. That's a great story. But what about the courage of that first creature that walked up on dry land and got out of the ocean? That's a story too we might notice. The ongoing complexity of the evolutionary process, the relationship between climate and vegetation, between bees and flowers, the way some societies are competitive and aggressive and some societies are cooperative. We humans are like ants and bees. We couldn't have done anything How do we not learn the skills of social organization and how to do things together? All of that somehow, I believe, is the great sacred story. Now, why do I talk about this and why do I say that's related to the inside of the Baal Shem Tov and to the Jewish mystical tradition? The mystics always understood that creation is at the very basis of religious life. Faith in creation. We tell the story of creation every Shabbat. We lift up our cups and say, Yom ha-shishi The sixth day heaven and earth were finished. We love that story. We continue to revere that story. We tell that story. We don't believe that that's the way it happened. Our relationship to that story, which is an intimate relationship that I continue to have, to which I'm very loyal, cannot be characterized as belief. It has to be characterized as something else. Maybe it would be called faith. But not quite belief. We don't believe that's the way it happened, but it still somehow embodies our faith. That story, that story is itself a recreation of an older story. The story that was the creation myth known all over the ancient Near East. The story was how the Sea gods and the sky gods had a great battle the older gods were the gods of the sea the gods of the deep yam and tiamat were some of their names and they were the ancient gods of the world but then a new group of younger gods who lived in the heavens became more powerful and tried to effect rule over the heaven and over heaven and earth by their authority baal marduk those gods and the gods of the sea rebelled against the new rule of the sky gods and the sky gods slew the sea gods in a great battle and the earth was created of the corpses of the sea gods. That was the common creation myth of the ancient Near East, well-known in Babylonia, well-known also by the Canaanites in Ugaritic literature and so on. You can see echoes of it in the Bible. When God sets a border that the, earth, that the seas may not cover the earth, that's an ancient echo of the, of the battle of the sky gods and the sea gods. What did the Bible do? One God created it all, and after everything God created, God said, "Good, good, 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 very good." The only time God said not good was when He saw that human, with, that men were alone and needed needed partners, and so He creates woman. Lotov tov hayot adam levado is the first time God says not good. Um, all of us need all of us need partners. It's not good to be alone, but everything else was good, good, good. In other words, I took the old story and recreated it. I'm suggesting that we need to do that in our day. There is a new creation story, which is the story of evolution. It too is depicted as a battle of species against species. Every species struggles to survive its predators and to eat its prey. That's what we all do. Yes, we eat our prey and survive our predators. We have to become smarter than our predators or quicker than our predators so we get away from them. And then they don't eat us up. We eat somebody else further down in the food chain and we survive. That's where we come from. That's where we come from. Watch those two bucks in the woods bucking antlers against each other, yes, competing over a female who's waiting on the side and then watch young guys on Wall Street and tell me if they're not doing the same thing, yes? With their bucks, so to speak. Right? We, we, we come from there. Those memories, that, that, that part of our DNA, that part of our genetic heritage is not lost. But we became something more. We developed a mind and a conscience that transformed us. Every species that exists is addressed by the one that inhabits it through instinct. Instinct says thrive, survive, reproduce, thrive, survive, reproduce. That's what all animals are taught to do. Survive, thrive, reproduce, eat, don't be eaten, make the next generation then go. That's what you do. We also have a voice that speaks within us. But because we have a different kind of mind, that voice calls to us in a different way. It says, thrive, survive, reproduce. Find out what you're doing here. Find out what you're doing here. Make meaning. That's the voice that says to Adam and Eve the one word that God speaks to them in the Garden of Eden. The first word God speaks to a human being, Ayaka, where are you? That voice calls out to us and says, Where are you? Are you aware of what's going on here? That you're a part of an evolutionary process that's been going on for millions of years and will continue for millions of years after you? And when you make babies and transmit your culture to them and educate them, you are participating in that evolutionary process? You are carrying a cultural legacy forward, which is part of evolution? Do you realize that? Are you aware? Open your eyes. That's what that voice is saying to us, that voice is saying be aware. And not only be aware, keep aware. Remind yourself because you human beings are very forgetful creatures. You're too busy with the other things, thrive, survive. You're too busy with making a living, with making babies, with raising those children, with making sure they have enough to eat and making sure you have more and more comfort, more and more, and more and more creaturely things. So therefore create a system to remind yourself that you are here as part of the One that is greater than you. And you're here for an instant on this planet. And the One will be here long after you and was here long before you. So therefore create a system of reminders for yourself to wake yourself up periodically. You know what that's called? Religion. That's what religious forms are all about. They're reminders to make us awake. To say, hey, there is something more going on here in life. I'm here for a purpose. And my life is part of this vast thing that's happening. The evolution of this planet, the evolution of species, and the movement toward greater complexity, toward greater awareness, toward greater fulfillment. We're not the end of the evolutionary process. We're just along the way somewhere. Somewhere if we don't destroy this planet a few hundred thousand years down the pike there's a creature who's going to look back at those people in the 21st century and, and laugh at us. Those people, they thought they were so smart and advanced they almost destroyed the planet. How, can they, how could they have been so advanced in some ways and so primitive in others? They will, they will look upon us the way we, we express our discomfort at being descended from, from the great apes. Uh, we, are some, we are somewhere along that process. But... But we are vital links. We are part of it. And so this work we are doing, passing down our culture, our Jewish heritage, from one generation to the next, is part of that. It's part of that. It's the one mitzvah Jews care most about, you know. The shinantam vanecha, teach them to your children, is really all Jews care about. Even Jews who have no Jewish content left in their lives for whom the, the thick stew of tradition has become watery soup they still desperately want to pass it down need to pass it down because we have a sense that we inherited something great and we have to give it to our children and grandchildren and if we don't we feel like failures that's part of that that's part of that broader work so my friends we are in an age of great crisis today we have reached a point where this planet will not survive as a fitting home for higher forms of Featurely life, unless we change the attitude with which we live on this planet. I firmly believe that the environmental crisis will be the great issue of the 21st century, aggravated and made much worse because of the irresponsibility and inability of political leadership at the beginning of this century to move. I believe we will be called upon in the course of the next 50 years in the lives of your children or grandchildren to make great changes and sacrifices in the way we live. So that this species can survive. And so that all species can survive, because this is the first time in the history of our planet that the fate of all species depends upon the actions of one. We now control the whole ball game whether sparrows survive in the woods in the woods, of, uh, in the woods of, of the state of Washington or, or tigers survive in India or elephants survive in Africa, all that depends on human beings. Yes, we are we are now. We have become masters of the planet in the way we no species has ever been. How are we going to change that behavior? If everybody in China and India can have the same amount, number of cars and air conditioners we have, we're finished. And for us to fight a battle to keep our cars and and air conditioners and to keep everybody else out is not going to work, either practically or morally. And so we're going to have to do something very different. We're going to have to find a different way to live in this world. I do not think it will work if decreed by a reinforced United Nations from above enforced enforced small families, enforced, you can't do this and you can't do that because you're using too many resources. I think it will have to well up from below. People, People will have to change. The attitude with which we live in the world will have to change. And I think only religion can do that. Because religion enters into the way people think about how we live in the world and what it means to live in the world. And so invoking our religious traditions, all of them, all of them, not just Judaism, to rethink and restructure how we live on the planet and what we do here, what our sense of responsibility is, will be the great job of religious teachers in the 21st century, the great job of retooling religion in the 21st century. And therefore, the insights of the Jewish mystics, I think, are terribly important to this process. That there is divinity to be found everywhere means that holiness is found everywhere. means that we revere every human life and we revere every creature as manifesting a mysterious presence of God. We therefore are going to treat it with reverence. We therefore will learn to walk with a lighter footprint in the world and to overcome our sense of domination. We learned to take the new tale of origins, the Darwinian story, and retell it in a harmonizing way where every creature has a legitimate place, where every creature is loved the way the Biblical story retold, retook that ancient story and made it into a story of harmony and created a Western civilization that lasted pretty well for 3,000 years or so. It's now time to open ourselves to this new creation story and say it is, it is a sacred story. There is a religious dimension to be found there rather than religion fighting evolution. That's a losing battle. That's the battle of the 20th century. It's over. Rather to take that story and to see it with what Heschel called the eyes of wonder, with radical amazement. To open our eyes and really see the the divine presence in each moment of that story and in processes of natural selection and how we've gone step by tiny step. Mutation, change, how it's worked, how it's happened. Not in a uniform way, but in a broad sense going from the simple to the complex, heading toward greater diversity, greater variety of species and more complex systems. The journey from single-celled animals to the marvel of the human mind, which we're only beginning to understand. Uh, that's a story worth telling. It's a story worth getting excited about. So I am uh, a believer in that story and I'm a lover of the old story. I'm a lover of the story that begins in the beginning God created heaven and earth. That's still the story I love. I've started a new practice, new religious practice in my own life that I share with you. It's not really a new one, it's an old idea, but I've taken it back. Something Jews haven't done in a long time, and that is when I pray every day, I daven in the morning, when I pray every day, I conclude every day with the creation tale of that day. On Sunday, I say in the beginning God created, there was one day, and on Monday, I say God created the upper waters and the lower waters and separated the upper from the lower. On Tuesday, I say God created the plants and so on so that when I come to Friday night and I say, Yom HaShishiv HaShamayim, sixth day the heaven and earth were finished, I've completed the tale again. And I tell that tale every day, I recite those verses every day to remind myself that every day's prayer and every day's life has to be in awareness of what we have to do in this world, of seeing the creative force that's there in us and around us understanding the sense of responsibility for this planet and this civilization that we have that is now very much threatened and understanding that it's only by human beings learning humility by human beings learning that it's not just given to us but that we are here as stewards we are here as responsible as responsible agents um, only that way will the world survive so I am uh, I am a believer, you see, in some strange way. After writing all kinds of things about radical Judaism and how hard it is to believe certain things in the late 20th and 21st century, I marvel at the fact that, uh, that this quest for spiritual wisdom that I began with, this quest for spiritual wisdom from all over the world, and including this quest for re-accessing the Jewish mystical tradition and the wisdom of the Hasidic masters, happens at a time when we most need it. Happens (coughs) at a time when we most need to find some way to change the way we live on this planet if we want to survive. Um, Maybe there is something you can call the hand of God in that discovery. Maybe the voice that calls out to us, where are you, is also calling out to us somehow, here is some of my wisdom that you might need to look at along the way. I suggest it's worth looking at it. The uh, Hasidic movement that I study was originally an oral movement. It was a movement of oral teachers and their students. Books came only later. It was always considered better to have heard something from a living master than to have read it in a book. If you told a Hasidic story and said, I saw it in such and such a book, no, people would sneer at you. You're not the real thing. I heard it from my Rebbe. Heard it from his father. Heard it from his Rebbe who was there when it happened. That's how you told the Hasidic story. But it is part of Judaism. And Jews love to write books and read books and study books. So the Hasidic masters began to produce books. You know there's a story about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov had a dream. He refused to allow any of his students to write down his teachings. Because he said, it's all in the moment between master and disciple. It's what I say to you and look at you is what you need to hear in this moment. If you read it in the book 20 years later, you'll get the wrong message. He refused to let any of his disciples write it down. Then he had a dream. In the dream, he saw a demon. And the demon was prancing around and carrying a book. And the Baal said to the demon, what's that book? And he said, that's your book. You wrote it. And then he understood that one of his students was writing it down. So we called all the students in the next day, he said, okay, show me the notebook. And one trembling student said, but, but Master, I just wanted to preserve your words for posterity. And he looked at the notebook and said, there isn't a single word here, I said. Because once you write it down, nevertheless they wrote it down. So I want to tell you something about the very first Hasidic book. The very first book was by the Baal Shemto's disciple called Yaakov Yosef. It was a book called *Toldot Yaakov Yosef*, the generations of Jacob Joseph. People named the books after their own names, and it's a big tome. It's very hard to read. It's complicated homilies on the five books of of Moses. So the first page of that first book is a homily on Genesis. But in it, (laughs) the very first page, he quotes a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, from the last book of the Torah, and that verse says, "Byomahu haster astir panaimikem." On that day, I will hide, hide my face from you. He says, why does it say hide twice? On that day, I will hide, hide my face from you. He says, because there are two kinds of hiding. One kind of hiding is if something is hidden, you lost something. Oh, I lost it, it's hidden from me. I'll go look for it. And then you begin on the journey, you start looking for it. Maybe you'll find it. But then there's another kind of hiding, where things are so hidden that you don't even know to begin looking. He says that's the kind of hiding, that's the double hiding of haster astir. Things will be so hidden from you that you won't know that you have to start looking. So, why is that interpretation on the first page of the first Hasidic book? Because he's saying, my readers, once you read this book, the jig is up on that first kind of hiding. You may not find it, but you'll know you're missing something and have to start looking. My message to you in Phoenix 200 years later is the same. Thank you.
0: We have time to take some questions for Rabbi Green, so maybe I'll field them.
1: Sure. Okay. It's always good to have the rabbi field the questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know who the dicks are.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> rabbi Green, uh, can you please expound on your views, or or say a little bit more about the great debate about uh, Torah given on Sinai, or was or were the documents written by the human hand, and how you. Reconcile
0: and don't reconcile those
1: ideas. Did everyone hear the question? Yeah. Is the Torah a divine document or a human document? Yeah. The answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it says yes in your Torah. It says yes in your Torah, not just no, it says yes. Um, I live in a post-critical age. One of the things we were really doing in Chavorat Shalom, Michael, that you were very much part of, is discovering that you can accept critical history, you can accept scholarship, you understand the texts were written over a long period of time, and yet somehow still they are sacred texts for you. You say, but, but there, is, there is a divine voice still to be heard here, and I want to open my ears to that voice. How did that voice get there in those texts that were written by human beings? I don't know. I wasn't there, but I can testify that it is present. I can testify with with hundreds of generations of Jews that it is present. And I continue to try to open myself to it, and sometimes I'm privileged to hear it. And sometimes I'm privileged to see insights into that text, and those those insights can come from the pshat or from the remez or from the sod. They can come from one type of interpretation or another. Sometimes the literary tools of critical scholars also give those insights into the text where you suddenly feel a divine moment. One of the great tools that Hasidism had, the Balshem Tov started this but the others followed him, reading a verse in a surprising, shocking way. Oh my God, I never saw it that way. That's a kind of mind-opening tool. It's a little bit like the slap of a Zen master and the Baal Shem Tov can suddenly take a pasuk, let the text, let, let this moment never become old for us, let us always be always be present. There's a hundred other examples of texts that he could just read in a transformative way. And that, that opened the mind. Now those texts were written by people who maybe had an idea of those future readings and maybe didn't, doesn't make any difference. Um, the... Uh, The Swasemba, one of my favorite Hasidic masters, has a reading of the blessing we say after we have an aliyah for, uh, to, uh, in the synagogue. We say, "Asher Natan lanu temet, olam nata betochenu." You remember? We thank God. You gave us the Torah of truth. He says that's the Written Torah. And olam nata and implant an eternal life within us. That's the Oral Torah that Oral Torah is still alive. What, we bring, to what, we, what we bring to it is the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah is not a body of literature. The Oral Torah does not mean the Talmud and the Shulchan ark The Oral Torah is the process of taking that ancient text written, given, passed down, who knows, was his name Moses, was his name Ezra, exactly when did he live, and how many people does he represent and how many voices that are there together that's all right am israel the jewish people has sanctified that text we've declared that to be our holy text but now we open ourselves to it and we open it to us and we take the chayey olam that eternal life that lives within us and we reinterpret that text the process of reinterpretation is the sacred jewish process that's where the work is <coughs> The work is in making that text alive again and again for new generations. And then he says that began Asher in the past tense. But only after we have Chaye Olam, only after we apply our eternal life to it does it become Noten HaTorah. God is giving the Torah again in the present tense. Because God is giving the Torah through our process of interpretation. So we are present in that. We have to be present in that process. And it's not just handing down the past, but it's the creative energy that we put into it. So I think the Torah is always being given. is always being given by God. What do, we, what do I mean by it's always being given by God? It means the creative spirit within the human being is part of that great one that underlies the mystery of existence. And that one manifests itself in human creativity and in the human spark. And therefore, to take an ancient tradition and constantly give it new life, is to feel that presence of revelation always happening. Can I say that presence of revelation is happening to me, but it didn't happen back then? Of course not, it was happening back then too. And yet I understand that all the, all the pen and ink and quill were human entities. Were human I scared them off. Yes. <laughs> yes. Rabbi, you mentioned that uh, you've
0: seen more meditation books in the last
1: uh, two hundred. Twenty years in the last two thousand. Right? Yes. So uh, I'm quite precise about that. <laughs> Yes, it is turning off our constant buzz of distraction, and therefore opening ourselves to the presence of a deeper reality. Silence helps, quieting the mind helps. There are techniques of doing this which were a part of our ancient tradition, which were mostly lost. Mostly lost because they were practiced by small groups of people. They were never considered something that you would give to ordinary people. (coughs) Ordinary people had the prayer book, and the prayer book was enough for them, and they needed to pour out their hearts to God because they needed things, needed to ask for things, needed to ask for healing, needed to ask for survival, needed to struggle for survival. So verbal prayer was considered enough for most people. But among the mystics, among the sages, there were traditions of quieting the mind, of coming before God in silence. Whether you read a man named Bachia in, the 11th, in 11th century Spain, or you look at the son of Maimonides, who was a kind of Jewish Sufi in, in 12th century Egypt, or, 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 or one of my students has written a book about a man named Isaac of Akko, who was a great mystic in 13th century Eretz Israel or go to the, to the sort of spiritual Musar texts of 16th, 17th century Sfat and afterwards, which talk about the value of inner silence. Those traditions existed, but were kept in, as I say, in small groups of people, and with, with the passage of generations, with the passage of time, and especially, especially with the tremendous upheaval of Jewish life in the mid 20th century, a third of us killed, Remember and many more of us moved from places where we lived, moved from ancient communities, reestablished, coming to America, going to Israel, traditions were lost. Uh, so we have now had to recover that piece of our tradition by contact with other traditions, by contact with traditions from the East, which have cultivated rules of silence and meditational silence for larger numbers of people than we did. And I think it's okay to recover that. I think it's all right to bring that in from other traditions. I don't like it when we when we use the forms of other traditions exactly. I'm kind of a purist. But the value of silence is something we recovered, we recovered. I like to tell the story this way. We are told the angels every day say Kadosh, 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 Hashem Melocholaretskivoto. Holy, holy, holy is God, the whole earth is filled with What do the angels know about what the whole earth is filled with? The angels don't live here. The angels live up in heaven. How can they say, Where did they get this idea that the whole earth is filled with God? You know what happened? God sent three angels down. They came to visit Abraham. They were very impressed. They came back and they said to their fellow angels, You know what that guy does? Even when he's tending his flocks, he thinks about God. Even when he's opening his tent flap and welcoming people in, he's talking to them about God. Even when he, even when he goes and, and, and has to wander through the, through the wilderness and dig wells, he's always thinking about God. And they were very impressed, and they started talking about it, and they said, the whole earth is filled with his glory. They learned it from us. They learned it from watching us. Sometimes you have to go far away to learn the truth that really is right there in your backyard. because <laughs> you have crumbs in your house that's why you have to clean for Pesach <laughs> you have a crummy house, what can I tell you so you have to clean for Pesach I'm going, I, after this winter, I said, I said to Rabbi Wasserman when I go home I start, I start on that job um, you have to clean for Pesach because we go through an annual purging that's really about liberation. We are preparing to come out of Egypt again. And those crumbs around us <laughs> represent leaving everything behind, going out, starting anew. Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav says, When the Jews were leaving Egypt, they didn't make any preparations for the way, they didn't take any provisions. He says, If you're about to leave Egypt and you stop and think, uh oh, How am I going to make a living out there? You'll never get out. Um, So there is a kind of, there is a kind of radical departure. We're going to leave everything behind. We do that twice a year by the way, right? Pesach and Sukkos. Sukkos, we leave our house behind and go out and live in a little hut in the woods as it used to be. And uh, that's the full fall full moon. On the spring full moon, we stop eating leavened food. We, we, we pretend we're we're back in the back in the back in the early ages, where all we have is the most is the most simple, simple food, and we start over again. Simple food, simple dwelling. It feels a little bit like our ancestors who became farmers and settled people were nostalgic for that age way, way back, way back before Egypt. Way back when we were still hunter-gatherers wandering. So at the spring full moon. We eat hunter-gatherers' food for a week. At the full full moon, we live at hunter-gatherers' huts for a week. There's some ancient wisdom in that tradition that we preserve. And we pass on the the feeling of that wisdom, the feeling of that wisdom from generation to generation. Um, and And the details, the hard work, go with it. I had a dear friend who passed away last year. His name was Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And We were friends for 50 years, and every year, about two days before Pesach, one of us would call the other on the phone while we were both scrubbing our sinks in our respective cities and we would say, remember, fervor without fanaticism. It's possible. I won't have him to call this year, so I'm telling you the story instead. Fervor without fanaticism, but a little bit of fanaticism is good for the soul. What do you think the modern pluralist response to? Time you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first question. The, the, the religious pluralism. Yes, yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. So I was walking out of my house one day in Philadelphia about to go teach rabbinical students, and somebody had the absolute nerve to park a pickup truck right in front of my house with a bumper sticker on it. And the bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I walked into class and I said, this is not a Jewish bumper sticker. <laughs> we would say, even our ancestors would have said, God said it, I believe it. Now let's talk about what it means. <laughs> we have never been <laughs> a fundamentalist tradition. Because there's always been multiple truths. There's always been devarafer, the devarafer. You can read the verse this way, read it that way, read it the next way. And all of them are somehow true. And the fact that Shivim Panunna Torah, the fact that there are multiple ways to see the Torah, and the Torah is open to richness of interpretation, has really saved us from fundamentalism. There is a new fundamentalism abroad in parts of the Haredi community today, mostly by people who just became ultra Orthodox two weeks ago and don't know very much, and are reading Judaism as though it were a fundamentalist tradition, and maybe people just more and more frightened and freaked out than ever by the outside world. But that's not the mainstream tradition, I would say, they would invoke that wonderful word mainstream. That's not what the tradition classically was. Um, Listen, we cannot take, as I I made very clear, my grandfather's Judaism shall not be my grandchildren's Judaism. And that means exclusive truth claims are over. Mine is true and yours is false. is not the way it works today. And that means that all those Hasidic texts I love, when they talk about Nishmat Yisrael, every Jewish soul can see this, and every Jewish soul is part of God, I have to read it in every human soul. And I reread that constantly, reinterpret that constantly. And that's a difference between what you hear from me and what you hear from your Chabad rabbi, who is saddled with the Tanya saying Jews have divine souls and Gentiles have only animal souls. And I read those texts and love those texts and I say absolutely no to that. Um, and we have to be very firm, very firm in our attitudes The attitudes toward women we find in those texts, very firm about the attitudes we see toward non-Jews in those texts. And that means we have to universalize the message. We are part of a great truth, and we have a valuable part of it, but we don't have the whole truth. Um, Yes, most of the Jewish people walked away from halakha in the course of the past century, a century and a half. I do not think halakha as a grand system is going to work for most Jews again and I don't think we should be berating them to, uh, to go back into the strict Dalat Halakha as Halakha was. Halakha means praxis. It means the way of walking. I get very upset when people translate Halakha as Jewish law. Because law is something, well, it's the law, but you do whatever you can to evade it, and if you don't get caught it's probably okay. And nobody really loves to do the law, it's just the law, you have to do it. But praxis, spiritual discipline, is something we can live with. So halakha should be seen as praxis. Religious, serious religious life requires discipline. And if you want to be a serious Jew, I would say, yes, you have to have a disciplined spiritual life. Judaism has wonderful forms for that. Learn those forms, take on those forms as much as you are able, as much as they work for you. I think Shabbos is something you can't do without. You can't do with Judaism without Shabbat. That's an essential, essential spiritual form. Whether you turn on electric lights or tear your toilet paper before Shabbos or whatever you do, that doesn't much interest me. Uh, I would say turning off the computer and the TV interests me much more. So living without canned entertainment, living sitting around a table and talking to real human beings instead of Facebook friends, that's what interests me. That's the important part of Shabbos today. You know, do you, uh, do, you, do you do this particular thing? Do you turn on the air conditioner? That, that's, that's not my concern. But I would say you can't do a Judaism without Shabbos. You can't do a Judaism without our calendar. And so the cycle of the holidays, the cycle of the seasons is terribly important. I'm very much looking forward to Pesach despite the work. We have 20 have some people coming to our Seder and I'm, 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 I'm getting to work for it already. And it's exciting and wonderful and transformative and exhausting at the same time. And I will then begin counting the days to Shavuot. So I'm living in that whole sense of, of what it means to be coming to the mountaintop and what it means to be receiving the Torah again. That's, that for me is very essential spiritual life. Um, so I think regular discipline is important and teaching people the value of that discipline is important. But you also have to ask, is this discipline working for me? And if it's not, maybe I have to rethink it, maybe I have to add something else. Maybe meditation, daily meditation, will be an important added discipline for some people. Um, maybe, uh, maybe running will be an important discipline for some people. That's also a worthwhile discipline, the kind of care for the, care for the body as God's creation, which we Jews have neglected too much. Maybe that's also a valuable discipline and can be built into one's spiritual life. I don't think Judaism can exist without any halakha. But the old halakha is too detailed, too compulsive, too frozen. I think we've got to rethink the enterprise. Um, in some things, in some things like ritual form, I find the halakhic insights very interesting but over-detailed. In some areas, like the role of women, I find them almost completely useless, and I think we have to start from the beginning. Uh, but I do think in the long run, a new halakha will emerge. But a new halakha will emerge only from a new agadah. Chaim Nachman Bialik said that in a famous essay. We need a new agadah, a new belief system a new set of values, a new asking ourselves what's important, what are the stories that motivate our lives? And from trying to tell those stories, forms of telling will emerge, and a new halacha will come out of that, maybe more in Israel than here, where, in Israel where Jewish life has lived more intensely. Maybe it will begin to emerge there. But I think there will be a great gap between what the old halakha is, which I think is an over-determined system, and a system that lost much of its moral courage. Uh, you know, the rabbis were able to defy the Torah when they wanted to. The rabbis were able to change things when they wanted to. The Torah says we. The Torah says we. We. we stone our rebellious children to death, and the rabbi said that never happened. How could they dare do that to a posuk? The Torah says you have honor killings. Yes, if a virgin is if, a, if an engaged woman is found in the city and she didn't scream out, then stone her to death. We have no case of that ever happening because Judaism evolved, because the rabbis understood. That was a primitive thing to leave behind. Unfortunately, some other societies didn't learn that, but we learned that. There was a lot of courage. My very favorite, which is something you've all seen but haven't noticed, is the Torah has a a place, the climax of the Torah story, where God finally comes out and describes who God is. Hashem, Hashem, Rachum God, the divine voice, speaks and says, "You got it. And it says, He will not forgive sins completely, but will visit them upon the third and fourth generation. And the rabbis took that passage for the synagogue and they cut off in Nakeh. They said, God will cleanse sins and just left the other part out. We recited over and over again on Yom Kippur and on fast days and so on, that refrain, Hashem, Hashem. We changed it. We took that and we completely, we completely changed the meaning. "Nakel lo yonakel" means indeed he will not cleanse; he will visit the sins of the fathers on the children. And we said no to the Torah. That was a lot. That was a tremendous courage the rabbis had in dealing with it. But find that courage in the 20th century. Find that courage in the in the in the, uh, in the well, you can't do it because some Achran in, 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 in Minsk said you couldn't do it in, 19, in 1918 and that's the end of the conversation. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's what's happened. So I think we need to go back several steps and, 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 and rethink this process. The process is important. You do need form and you need Form Mosul to hold us together. I'm aware of that, but, uh, but I think it went off the rails significantly. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank <laughs> you.